Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, guys, let's have a little basic science lesson before we begin today. First of all, pepper is a chemical. Uh, the thing in pepper that makes it spicy is called capsaicin, and it's a chemical, even Say though pepper again, is a vegetable. Please? Capsaicin is an active component of chili peppers, which are plants belonging to the genus capsaicin. It is a chemical irritant for mammals, including humans. Chop some peppers sometimes and rub your eyes and ask yourself if that's a chemical or if it causes tears. When did you learn the the word capsaicin? Did you learn it before or after you went on Face the Nation to deny that uh, pepper spray was contained a chemical? Definitely before. Thank you, Ben. I just, I mean, how do we really know that that plants have chemicals in them? I mean, plants are plants. They're not chemicals. It's natural. Pepper spray is natural and organic. Chemicals are things made in a lab at Exxon. That's why no plants have chlorophyll in them. Wait, chlorophyll. Maybe Bill Barr was made in a lab at Exxon. Chlorophyll is a chemical, <laughs> and it's the reason plants are green, because they use that chemical to photosynthesize. But isn't everything chemicals? Isn't like water a chemical? I mean, it's so, there's a lot of chemicals. Let me ask you this, Ben. If you pushed Bill Barr backwards, could he make himself fall to the ground faster? Yeah, I mean, between falling backwards hard on purpose, as the president accused the 75-year-old gentleman in Buffalo of doing, and not knowing what a chemical is, it has not been a good week for basic STEM in the administration. The president's having a little trouble with gravity, and Bill Barr doesn't know what a chemical is. Next thing, you know, we'll find out is that Ben Carson actually doesn't know how to do brain surgery. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the day late and a dollar short edition. I'm Shane Harris, pepper aficionado. I bet you have fancy pepper at home, Shane. Ooh, I well, yes, some kind of like well, a pink peppercorn, you know. Well, we have some of those, and we have two peppers growing in the garden. We have shishito peppers, and we have some just basic red chilies, which I'm going to use for spice. And I also have a jar of uh, a uh, black chili. It's called, I think it's called Urfa chili is how you would say it. Uh, and it is just fabulous. I... And then a couple canisters of uh, tear gas. <laughs> no, these are all chemical-free chilies. I see. And are you going to make them into a spray to launch at your enemies? What else would I do with them? Don't cross Shane. <laughs> I am joined by all my friends who are ducking in their remote jungle studios. Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi, Shane. We love chemicals, preferably the kind that come in bottles on this show. <laughs> from Scott. alcohol is a chemical? <laughs> it has chemicals in it. Sure. <laughs> Don't put it in your eyes. It'll sting. <laughs> On the podcast this week, who ordered what and when as police cleared peaceful protesters from Lafayette Park last week? And what chemicals were they influenced by? <laughs> and what was in their order? What chemicals did they order? Not enough oxytocin, that's for sure. <laughs> My goodness, but plenty of hydrochloroquine. Those protests and others in every state have sparked a national debate about policing. And the former and former Trump administration officials are speaking out against the president after possibly holding their tongues for too long. All right. So let's get back to Peppergate to start with here. Um, we are learning a lot more about what went down a week ago, I guess a week ago last Monday in Lafayette Park when the president, of course, uh, well, when the protesters were peaceful protesters were cleared out using, yes, 
chemical gas and batons and horses and shields and other manner of implements uh, to make way for the president's photo op. I want to give a big shout out to some colleagues of mine at the Washington Post who did a pretty phenomenal 12-minute video analysis of exactly what happened. And actually, it's overlaid with police conversations on their radios. It's really informative, so you should check that out at uh, the website. Um, But it's becoming clearer that officials are changing their story. Uh, Ben alluded to Bill Barr's interview on Face the Nation, which we're going to talk about, where he really seemed to walk back from claims that he had made earlier in the week that, yes, he was the one who was ultimately responsible for giving that order to clear out the protesters and extend the security perimeter around the White House. Tammy, first question to you on this. What are you making of the way that officials seem to be changing or modifying their stories? And what strikes you as the most significant revelations of what we've learned about how very senior Trump administration officials were participating uh, in this act against peaceful protesters? So the the post uh, video investigation, Shane, that you cited is fascinating and very worth 12 minutes of your time because it's based on camera footage and police radio information and other like empirical data. And then along with that, over the course of the last week, you know, the Times and the Post and others have had their sort of insider accounts of what happened in the White House Monday when they decided the president would walk across Lafayette Square to do this photo op and and how they decided to clear the square and who said what and who was on which side of the issue. And it's important to, I think, contrast that post video rooted in objective data with the insider accounts that are written in a narrative form, because inevitably those insider accounts suffer from source bias. You have to rely on what people tell you happened in the room. You weren't there. You can't see it yourself. And what's fascinating about those accounts is how over the course of the week, as these different narratives were written, it turns out more and more of the people in Trump's inner circle argued against clearing protesters in Lafayette Square. You know, on Monday, it was Barr who gave the order. He even confirmed it or his staff confirmed it. But by Thursday, he had argued to the president against that. And so uh, to me, you know, the lesson that you take away from that is not that that kind of Woodwardian reporting is always suspect and should be tossed out. But the real takeaway is that those who may have advocated for uh, the president's jaunt across Lafayette Square and the forcible clearing of protesters, or even those who didn't argue against it at the time, realized very quickly that it was indefensible. It's what happened last week, what I see, was that all these people had been living, as you do when you're in a senior position in government, living in their insular little Trumpian bubble where everything was about the agenda of the president. And they suddenly realized after Monday night and with the surge of protests on Tuesday that what looked reasonable inside the bubble was completely indefensible outside the bubble in the real world. And what made them realize that was the response of civil society. And this is something that, you know, people who study social movements know that if a a government confronts protesters with force, it can expect protests to grow the next day. And that's exactly what happened here. And the protests got more widespread across the country. And the number of peaceful protesters overwhelmed people who were interested in provoking violence. Um, And that made it all even more indefensible. And so to me, it's a, it was a really interesting illustration of how even the most impervious of bubbles, like the bubble of the Trump administration, can be permeated in extreme circumstances. Susan, there's also been a lot of questions that have come out about this from this incident about the legal justification for for doing this. I mean, I don't know, you know, what authorities uh, that even goes to the question of like who actually were these officers? Who did they report to? What agency did they come from? Um, talk a bit about 
the legal justification to do this and and maybe some of what Bill Barr has put out there as well uh, as to what he thinks um, gave federal officials uh, and police the authority to disperse these crowds who the video clearly shows uh, were almost overwhelmingly peaceful. There may have been one instance or two of someone throwing a water bottle, but it just, it, it belies Bill Barr's claims that there were hurling projectiles, uh, you know, towards officials and police, including himself, as he claimed. Yeah, Luke, I, I think Tammy is right that uh, what happened in Lafayette Square crossed a a sort of new red line. And so uh, the Trump administration is now kind of scrambling to justify it. And it, it is really significant that Bill Barr is kind of the face of the obfuscation and walk back back effort. And it's significant that Bill Barr apparently gave the order to do this and is now sort of lying about it. And, you know, I, I think whenever you sort of think about, um, you know, Bill Barr gave this statement uh, or gave an interview to Face the Nation on Sunday. Um, and sort of the broad accusation here is that, uh, you know, the government, the Trump administration used tear gas against peaceful protesters for a photo op. That is one of the clearest, most sort of gut-wrenching uh, distillations of abuse of power against the American people. And so Bill Barr is now out there trying both as a legal matter and in sort of these bizarre technicalities to argue against that, right? So first he's saying, no, 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 it wasn't tear gas, it was pepper balls, and it's not a chemical and this and that, even though it actually appears that even that is a lie because the members of the media have actually identified uh, canisters labeled with, uh, with what is commonly referred to in including by the CDC and Park Police as tear as tear gas, um, that this was about peaceful protesters, right? Bill Barr is also trying to come out and say, no, 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 these projectiles were being thrown. They were really violent. Um, whenever Margaret Brennan sort of pushed him and said, you know, we had three colleagues there. They didn't see any of it. Bill Barr said, well, I saw people throwing projectiles and I was there. Um, even the Park Police and their later cleanup statements, their, uh, their allegation of when people threw projectiles was 20 minutes after Bill Barr left. Um, and then sort of the final thing that the justification here was about a photo op, which it plainly was. And now Bill Barr is going out and saying, no, 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 it was about moving the perimeter an extra block. And it was purely coincidental um, that the president was, was having this photo op right afterwards. Um, and it's sort of this, this pedantic, nitty gritty sort of distractionary techniques to try and get people to debate these really silly points and not step back and realize the gravity of what occurred here. Um, and the real concerns about the lawlessness, the lack of chain of command, the idea that while we know it was U.S. Park Police and some other entity, potentially the National Guard, although it's not entirely clear, it's not entirely clear in what capacity the National Guard was operating. So at the same time that Bill Barr is sort of having these, picking these weird fights with journalists about, you know, the whether or not pepper counts as a chemical or not, at the same time, he's uh, he's responded to Mayor Bowser's request for a legal justification for why out-of-state National Guard troops were even in D.C. in the first place, giving this very, very bizarre sort of statute saying somehow they were there uh, to as as part of sort of a training authority, this really really broad justification, and and it all comes back to sort of the same core issue that when you have an attorney general who has now decided to lie and and to do so brazenly um, and to offer sort of pretextual and flimsy legal and and, and factual legal justifications and factual accounts, um, you're in a really really dangerous place, and and you're in a place in which I, I think it's pretty clear that Donald Trump has has this sort of broad general impulse to want to use troops against the American public, right? Asking uh, Millie and uh, Secretary of Defense Esper for 10,000 active duty troops to be deployed in Washington, D.C. Um, and his staff can argue the various technicalities uh, with press. But at the end of the day, what Barr and others are doing are trying to find some way to facilitate that impulse in at, in at least limited ways. And, and that is just a really really, really terrifying place to be in. Ben, I want to pick up on all of those points that Susan 
really succinctly made about Bill Barr's behavior, which on the one hand strikes me as his behavior rather bizarre, considering he is going out publicly and dissembling, lying in some cases, trying to rewrite history, trying to rewrite things he himself had said only days earlier. But we've had a lot of conversations, including I think last week, about what motivates Bill Barr and ultimately what is you know the nature of his character and his views towards these protests and the authorities of the presidency and the executive branch, which are kind of really coming to a head in this incident in the park for sure. So I mean, my question basically to you is, why is Bill Barr doing this? I mean, why when we see you know, Millie and Esper or their surrogates clearly putting out the word that, you know, don't look at me. I advised against this. And everyone is doing that classic Washington, you know, walk back. Um, Bill Barr seems to be diving right in uh, and and making these sort of just provably false statements. Um, To what end? So, you know, as with last week, I honestly don't know. Um, He's clearly not the person that I thought he was. And, you know, whether he's animated by a sort of single uh, thing, I don't know whether it's kind of a pent-up anger at the left, whatever that means. I do think his conduct in this instance it's a little bit different from, you know, some of the other issues where we've talked about him because in those, you know, he's, uh, there is a coherent kind of worldview behind it where, you know, he's, he represents this kind of maximalist executive power position. Uh, he clearly believes a lot of stuff about the way the, the, the Russia investigation got started that, you know, seems to me clearly untrue, but I don't know that, I don't doubt that he really believes it. And, you know, he goes and he talks in this uh, very sort of bombastic way about these things. And I I, I suppose, I, I find it very hard to understand, but I suppose there is, there are a set of threads that tie that all together. What any of that has to do with well, it wasn't tear gas, it was pepper, you know, stuff. And yes, I did order the code red. No, I didn't. I just kind of suggested that maybe there should be a code red and somebody, I didn't give an operational code red command. And it was all about moving a perimeter and coincidentally timed with the president's speech. I mean, that kind of like cheap bullshit is not the way he usually talks, right? It lacks the bombast. It lacks the, you know, yeah, here I am, come and get me if you want, right? I mean, he's usually more macho than that and and less mealy-mouthed. And so I, I found his behavior this week very perplexing, even layered on top of the perplexity I already had about him. I feel like um, Ben's point about Bill Barr and the sort of um, lameness of these defenses or the incoherence of these defenses gets to something broader, which is, you know, this was clearly a moment uh, of looking over the abyss, putting a toe out over the edge of the cliff, and then um, after seeing the consequences of, of clearing Lafayette Square, backing far away from that abyss. And, you know, we can all be grateful for that. And perhaps even more grateful if the the post facto defenses are so lame, we can hope that that means that, that this kind of question won't be revisited. But I personally am not really that confident of that. I think that the political judgment over the last week has been, oops, that was a bad idea and it looks really bad. But I don't think that the legal arguments have yet been fully taken on and undermined. And I think that the while it was politically infeasible ultimately in the moment, it is still very much in the president's interests to take an action like that, which is so polarizing. It's in his political interests, even though it's 
deeply, deeply corrosive of our national fabric. And so the closer we get to the election, and particularly if the president really does feel himself at a disadvantage heading toward the election, I would expect that, you know, God forbid we have another sort of national crisis that erupts and this question may be openable again. I think the president may not care if he loses a defense secretary in going forward next time. Um, I, I think we really have to ask ourselves, what is it possible to do now to ensure that the president himself is constrained, not simply by, you know, uh, the defense secretary's sense of the good opinion of his former colleagues? All right. Uh, well, the events in Lafayette Park uh, and other protests around the country have made clear and have led to a big national debate, perhaps the biggest we've actually ever had in this country, about policing, about what authorities the police should have. How do we correct uh, dysfunction in police departments, which have been endemic in some departments? Um, what do we do about racist police, systemic racism in law enforcement? All of these issues are now coming to a head, and they are kind of getting placed under this broad term that has taken on a lot of currency in the past week, uh, defund the police. Uh, ben, I want to start with you on this question, because this is being taken up by activists. It is a question that is being posed to elected officials. Do you support defunding the police? Joe Biden was asked about this in an interview. Do you support defunding the police? You've seen these slogans on signs. You've seen them on graffiti. Uh, the city council in, uh, I believe, in Minneapolis has actually taken up the question. We can talk about that. But to start with, when people say defund the police, what do they actually mean? I think it depends who the they is when you say that. I mean, I think there are people who mean it very literally, that they they believe their communities are radically over-policed and they want the police disbanded and out of their communities. The more sophisticated version of the argument is is an argument for thinking very hard about the work that we have police as opposed to other service agencies do and for migrating some of that work mental health interventions uh certain other functions that you know responses to 911 calls for certain types of emergencies that don't need to be handled by police handled by something that isn't a paramilitary armed organization. I do note that the the slogan polls at around 15 or 16 percent. Uh, so to the extent people are trying to uh, suggest something sophisticated and nuanced with it, the language of it really does suggest something else and something much blunter um, and something that I think relatively few people actually mean, which is a world without local law enforcement. There have been places, and Minneapolis is one, in the just the other day where a, a veto-proof majority of the city council pledged itself to dismantling the current police service and kind of replacing it with something to be determined Something like that actually happened in Camden, New Jersey, with some apparently significant success in terms of uh, reducing police violence. So I think the, the way you can understand it is, is as some sort of a code word for truly radical reform of police departments, maybe up to including dismantling the entities and starting over. But I think the problem with the phrase is that it really does suggest to people not having local law enforcement, which I think very few people would regard that as a solution that's appropriate. 
And just uh, before I go to the next question, people should also go check out the conversation that Ben did on the Lawfare podcast with Rayshawn Ray from Brookings uh, and the University of Maryland, where they had a really good discussion about police-involved killings and the history of that. Uh, so if you're struggling with this question of just defund the police, do yourself a favor and also listen to that conversation to get much more firmly grounded in a lot of these issues and the systemic aspects of them, too. Um, Susan, a question for you. What can the federal government actually do to help reform police departments that are abusing their authorities or who are endangering citizens? Yeah, so I I sort of I largely agree with Ben that the slogan defund the police is uh, possesses no nuance at all. And and I actually think it's if you have to explain what a slogan means, um, and if it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, it's usually not a great slogan, something that's easy to sort of straw man. And this idea that um, somehow it's about moving the Overton window and really changing sort of the nature of conversations that can happen. I'm pretty skeptical of that, um, especially if the the nature of reform that people want are sort of evidence-based interventions. Um, I think there are a, a a lot of uh, sort of suggestions that we could imagine sort of reforms taking place at the state and local level. Um, and so, you know, part of that will be, you know, it's not just defunding the police, but diverting funding to the police. Um, you know, the, the, the few sort of areas in which there's pretty clear ability for federal intervention is on the question of qualified immunity and whether or not uh, police that are involved in shootings or, in, or involved in uh, in killing people are entitled to immunity and under, uh, under what can conditions. Um, you know, there's, uh, there, there's the funding question. There's, um, there's also things that the, the federal government can do via consent decrees, essentially. So things like banning neck holds. Um, there's not really a way for the federal government to dictate to a state, you can't do this anymore, at least the federal executive branch, unless Congress wants to pass a particular statute. But what they can do and have done in the past is enter into consent degree- decrees uh, with various local governments, various police forces in which the police uh, agree to voluntarily comply with a certain set of standards in exchange for not having sort of additional um, uh, activity or involvement taken against them. Um, you know, and look, there's a, there's a really robust and rich conversation going on right now about what those reforms could look like um, and, and, and the best sort of vehicles. Um, and, and I also think sort of new legislative interest and energy that, that I don't think we've seen in the past. Um, that said, you know, I was really struck. Um, somebody shared with me a quote um, that is uh, a witness gave in, in congressional testimony in 1967. Um, and this is Dr. Kenneth Clark, and he's testifying about uh, the findings of LBJ's uh, Kerner Commission report. Um, and here's what he says. He's, he's testifying to the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders about this report. And he said, I read that report of the 1919 riot in Chicago, and it's as if I were reading the report of the investigating committee on the Harlem riot of 35, the report of the McCone Commission in the Watts riots. I must again say in candor to you members of the commission, it is a kind of Alice in Wonderland with the same moving picture reshown over and over and over again, the same analysis, the same recommendations, and the same inaction. And I, I think it's it's a remarkable quote to read in 1967 and realize that today you could add reports that were written after Rodney King and, and Ferguson and Oakland and really say the exact same thing. Um, and so at the end of the day, it's not about coming up with specific evidence-based policies that might actually work and sort of take the practical steps to reform. It's whether or not there actually is the political will to implement them, um, and whether or not, uh, in, in this case, there's the political will to implement them, um, not just uh, absent the federal government, but in some cases, sort of it, in spite of the federal government or with a federal government that appears to be sort of set against it in this moment. And so um, I, I think there's a lot of sort of hope and optimism of this moment, um, but we also sort of shouldn't lose sight of a, a little bit of the trap that are, are we just in the same exact cycle again, where there's going to be yet another study, yet another report, um, and it's you know going to get shoved in a drawer somewhere. And you know five years from now and 10 years from now and 20 years from now, um, we're going to be saying the same thing over and over and over again. So based on exactly what you just said, Susan, 
I want to defend the slogan, defund the police, because it is it is empirically true. Indeed, it is obvious that there are certain dimensions um, of policing, especially perhaps including racial bias in policing, that are really longstanding. This is also a moment when Americans really should be asking themselves, what have our police become? Because our police today are not the same um, as the police of the 1960s or the 1930s or the 19-teens. We ask them to do a lot of different things that we didn't ask them to do then. We have given them capabilities that they did not have then. And Along with that, we have changed the role that police play in our society in all kinds of ways that, to me, compound the longstanding endemic problems of racial bias in policing and police violence that is disproportionately visited on Black people in this country. And so what I like about the slogan, defund the police, is not that it it encapsulates exactly the reforms that people want, but that it forces the question of what is it we want police to have money to do? Like, what are they for? How does this fit into the broader panoply of things we want government to do and we want society to do? When you look at the budget allocations of major cities in this country and the, and the incredible spike of police funding relative to social services, public schools, addiction programs, you know, uh, domestic violence programs. Like, and so what happens is the budget goes to the police. And then we, because the police have the capability, we expect them to handle those things. So the schools don't have money to work on school security and gang prevention. So police officers end up checking kids for guns and patrolling the hallways and doing interventions in our schools because the police have the budget for it and the school doesn't. It's kind of like at a local level, what's happened to the Pentagon, where the Pentagon has a massive budget, the rest of our foreign policy apparatus is squeezed for funding. And so we ask the Pentagon to do things that the State Department should be doing and the USAID should be doing. So I, I like defund the police as a forcing mechanism to talk about function and budget and and get cities and states to really think about how they want to allocate resources differently and get those functions served in different ways. And Tammy, just to sort of follow up, so do you think slogans like demilitarize the police, things that are right, sort of uh, tied to sort of specific things the federal government could do, you think that doesn't capture the broader issue and broader conversation that, that you see as necessary at this point? No, I, I don't think it does. I, look, I do think that we should demilitarize the police. I agree with Patrick Skinner, who says that we should stop talking about what the police's mission is as fighting a war on this or a war on that. And we should stop asking police to think about themselves and train themselves and equip themselves as though they're fighting a war. And so we should stop giving them war fighting equipment from the federal government. But that's that's tactical in the scheme of things, I think, that we need to be thinking about. And, you know, defund the police may not work politically in garnering public support to pass a police reform bill, but I do think that it's getting at the right question. All right. I have no segue. I have just no segue for this. Let's talk about people who wait too long to talk. That's a good segue. Let's Let talk about defunding Shane's segue fund. <laughs> the White House is going to talk about defunding John Bolton's book. There you go. We just found our segue. You did it. Yay. We did it together. We can get there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, John Bolton, the former National Security Advisor, you remember him. Can we call him hashtag John Bolton? Hashtag John Bolton. Sure. Hashtag mustache. King of mustache. The last it's how mustache. he always refers to himself on Twitter. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. 
<laughs> oh my god, that's great. Uh, well, he has a book coming out. It's quite long, apparently, and he swears it's coming out in the next couple of weeks. Uh, apparently, I guess White House concerns about it containing classified information be damned. Uh, Jim Mattis, of course, uh, had that scathing rebuke of the president that ran in the Atlantic as a response to what he saw happening in Lafayette Park uh, and had a few things to say about President Trump, notably that he was the first president in his lifetime that sought to divide people rather than unite them. Uh, And even John Kelly, even John Kelly spoke out on the record uh, to say that he had some issues as well. You know, Putting aside for the moment the, the, these the principles these people are speaking to, which let's just say for sake of argument, they do deeply feel and are not just trying to sell books or get clicks in the Atlantic. Um, to you on this, Susan, first, and we'll get to the question about the White House and Bolton's book. But as a general matter, why do you think it has taken so long for these individuals to speak up? And do you think that their words have come too late? So I don't really have an answer for the question of why it's taken so long. I do have an answer for why whether it's too late. And the answer is it's never too late to do the right thing, but it is too late to have a real impact. Um, and I, uh, I understand that it's going to sound unfair to listeners to who heard me last week say, why isn't Jim Mattis speaking out? And he should really say something um, only to have, you know, hours later, although I presume uh, not in response to my uh, rational security rant, Jim Mattis actually say something. And now for me to say, well, I don't really think it matters. Um, it, it, it does matter, but it doesn't really have an impact. And, and that's kind of the reality. And And the reason why is because he just waited too long. Um, And there was a moment in which people were waiting to hear what Jim Mattis had to say about his experience of the administration. And he chose not to speak in that moment. And he chose to sit in silence through a thousand sort of degradations. And so, you know, I could come up with a sort of a rational explanation for why Jim Mattis might feel like, look, the um, the using of uh, U.S. military personnel or National Guard troops or apparently um, General Milley participating in this photo op that was um, about sort of preserving civilian control of the military and sort of the appropriate use. And so he felt like that was his lane. Um, you know, but the reality is, is it, it got headlines for about 24 hours. And, and I don't think it really makes a difference. And, and I think it would have meant more and done more had he said something sooner. Um, that said, you know, I, I thought it was a really um, powerful and, and, and moving op-ed, and I'm still heartened to see sort of his willingness to say it, you know, and, and I'm willing to allow for the delay having been just a question of, of difference of opinion and good faith, his good faith understanding of his own duty. Um, when we come to people like John Kelly sort of interjecting to say, you know, no, he, President Trump didn't uh, fire Jim Mattis, and I agree with Mattis. That, that's that's far too little, far too late. And I, I don't really understand why he feels the need to intervene in the conversation at all if he's uh, if, if he's not going to issue the kind of statement that Mattis did. Um, and then whenever it comes to John Bolton, of course, it's too late, um, you know, and, and it's not just too late for what he said to really have an impact, um, because, of course, you know, we should remember that John Bolton uh, refused to testify before the House about his conversations with Trump uh, regarding Trump telling him, allegedly telling him, uh, to hold up military aid to Ukraine until they investigated the Bidens, uh, the core of the impeachment inquiry. Then John Bolton changes his mind, says that he's willing to testify before the Senate. The Senate GOP votes uh, votes to not call, not subpoena John Bolton, um, and it goes nowhere. And so now, now John Bolton finds himself in the unenviable position of wanting to speak out, of course, wanting to speak out in the form of selling a whole lot of books. Um, and the White House is now giving What's what uh, I think is pretty clear uh, is a completely pretextual claim that there's classified information in this book. Um, the book has now been shipped. Uh, it's apparently sitting in warehouses. The cat is completely out of the bag. Um, and so, you know, I, honestly, it's hard for me to imagine a worse way that John Bolton could have played this. And and while I'm willing to have sort of sympathy and nuance in the view of people like General Mattis, uh, you know, John Bolton was incredibly cynical from top to bottom. And, and I think he's he might pay a real price for it now 
Uh, just before, I, Ben, you have a point, but I just want to actually read a statement that I have here just today from Simon & Schuster, the publisher of John Bolton's book, because we had inquired into this question of was the book coming and what about the White House Review? And they say, in the months leading up to the publication of The Room Where It Happened, Bolton worked in cooperation with the National Security Council to incorporate changes to the text that addressed NSC concerns. The final published version of this book reflects those changes, and Simon & Schuster is fully supportive of Ambassador Bolton's First Amendment right to tell the story of his time in the Trump White House. So to your point, Susan, really doesn't sound very much like he necessarily did exactly what they told him to, or it's not even clear how how fulsome the back and forth was on the classification review. But for what it's worth, that's his publisher's statement. Uh, Ben, go ahead. Yeah, so I I have thought both about... Mattis and about hashtag John Bolton. Regarding Mattis, uh, I think it is too early to say it's not going to have an effect. And I think part of the question is, does he issue that statement and then basically go back to saying nothing? Or does he give some interviews? You know, does he have more to say on some of the themes that he laid out quite eloquently in that statement. I do think if there are a group of people who at the senior levels of that administration who say, you know, and you saw the beginning of this, we worked for him. He is unfit. The three biggies here are, are Mattis, Tillerson and Kelly But there's also Anonymous, who clearly feels very strongly about it. And when, if and when that person, (laughs) Steve Mnuchin, chooses to reveal himself or herself, uh, I I do think having a group of those people, that could be a very powerful thing to the relatively small number of marginal voters who were sympathetic to Trump on some big themes, but who are concerned about the the uh you know demeanor the cray cray the you know that sort of thing so i think the verdict is yet out on how meaningful it is that mattis has spoken uh one other factor in that regard is the senior republican luminaries particularly george w bush but also mitt romney Boehner, Paul Ryan, there was a Washington, uh, New York Times story, I believe, about how all of them are not voting for Trump. And the question is, how public are they going to be about it? I think it's a very different environment if you have, you know, the senior national security officials of the Trump administration itself combined with a whole bunch of Republican luminaries saying, this is a real problem. We're, uh, you know, we're not going to support this. Um, than it is if it's just sort of a statement that got issued to Jeffrey Goldberg one day. That's a that's point one. Point two about John Bolton. Uh, I completely agree that he uh, could not have played this worse. There's also the small matter that the book is six hundred pages, and I. You know, I'm pretty deep in the swamp. I don't know anybody who wants to read 600 pages from John Bolton right now. And so, you know, I do think he's in an important way, quite apart from like like everything else, he's missed the moment where anybody cares about him. And I know that like telling that to somebody with an ego the size of his mustache is a tricky business, but like, Honestly, who's going to read it? Well, if he comes out, though, and says it's something that completely flips the script on what happened with Trump in Ukraine, which I'm not holding my breath, then it becomes quite significant. Politically, I'm not sure that it matters much in terms of- But how would it flip the script? We know what happened with Trump in Ukraine. There's not really much factual dispute. What could he add to it other than, like, the president looked me in the eye and said, John and John's mustache- I want you to 
fuck that little country if they yeah. don't give me the investigation. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Shane, I, I, to me, this gets to the fundamental question, which is like, what's the theory of the case? Like, what is the impact that one expects any of these uh, former Trump officials' statements to have? Like, what's the theory of the case here? There previously, it might have made a difference. Maybe, maybe, maybe might have made a difference for some senators in impeachment. I'm skeptical, but okay. And that was why we cared about the Bolton book before. But all that institutional, you know, constraint on the presidency stuff is over, as as I said last week. And so, who is it that we think will be influenced? You know, the main impact of Mattis's statement last week was that he backed up. Admiral Mullen and confirmed Esper and Millie in in doing the backtracking that they did. That was the immediate impact. I don't think it necessarily had any broader impact on anybody else. And I think that, you know, even if you if you think to November, who might be influenced by this? I don't think George W. Bush is going to speak publicly against Trump because these guys did. I don't think that that Wall Street bankers in Greenwich who vote for who like Trump because they like the tax cuts and the stock market, they don't care. They're going to vote for him if they think it's in their financial interest anyway. So what we're really talking about, if we're talking about any actual impact, is that maybe there are some Republican voters who like a lot of things about the guy. He like they like the way he makes them feel, but a statement from Bolton or a statement from Mattis scares them a little bit. And so maybe they stay home. That, If that's the impact, I mean, it's not insignificant in close states to have that kind of impact, but it it's pretty marginal. I, I just, you know, I think all these guys missed their moment if they actually wanted to alter the political trajectory for the president's reelection or for the president's remaining in office. They should have done that months ago. And just to put a fine point on that before we go to object lessons, Robert Draper, the journalist, actually had a very interesting tweet within, I think, an hour or so of Mattis's statement being published in The Atlantic, in which he said more or less, I'm paraphrasing, um, based on my conversations of lots of people around Mattis, he's holding back. He still has many more things to say, and they would be much more alarming. So if we're asking the question of, you know, has he waited too late to say what he knows. I think another question is, is he saying everything that he thinks? I mean, is there a moment, was there a moment at which the defense secretary possibly in conversation with, you know, the Homeland, then Homeland Security Secretary looked at each other and said, you know, the president's not fit to serve. Um, that's a very different thing. It would have been very different in the moment than a letter that comes out much later after the president is used, you know, forced to disperse protesters to say that's un-American and you're not very mature. Well, I mean, you know, many people, including a large number of Republicans increasingly would agree with that statement. It doesn't really move uh, the needle in terms of shocking people's conscience, I guess, the way that perhaps um, he could have once. Um, all right, let's go on to object lessons. Ben, what you got? So I, at the ripe old age of 50, have discovered video games. Oh, and oh boy. Oh boy. I'm, I'm really sorry, Jamie. The, the reason, weirdly, is that I was in Minnesota with uh, our friends Hannah and Alan. And they took us to a virtual reality parlor where we played on an Oculus. And I was sufficiently blown away by this that it took a couple of weeks ago only reading one review of a, a deranged fitness app for the Oculus Quest that I impulse bought one. And I am now a, I, I would just say, uh, a sudden devotee of, you know, killing things with lightsabers and batting away the shapes that personal trainers throw at me uh, in spaces that don't actually exist. Sounds like Twitter. <laughs> yes, exactly. And yesterday I discovered a boxing app that is sufficiently realistic that I um, have actually been using sort of 
skills I learned in years of Taekwondo to enhance my uh, prowess in the in the fake boxing ring. So I am a convert uh, to now to wasting a huge amount of time, and I expect fully to be much less productive. And if any rational security listeners want to throw things at me, I will see you in virtual space. You're, you're going to do your YouTube show with these damn goggles on, aren't you? Uh, no, but I would if, like, you can actually live cast uh, uh, from VR. But the thing is, Kate doesn't do this um, because she has dignity. And so we we can't do in lieu of fun from inside VR. Segway for your feet, segway for your face. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Uh, My object, uh, I'm going to flag a new book that is coming out later this month. Uh, It is called Rigged, America, Russia, and 100 Years of Covert Electoral Interference by a a journalist named David Shimmer. Um, This is ostensibly, it it is, a book about the the history of election interference and has a lot of really new interesting uh, information and insights about U.S. intelligence community interference and foreign policy interference. But I think the thing that's going to be really super interesting as well to our readers uh, is a lot of new uh, depth of information about Russian interference in the 2016 election. Um, David talked to a, a pretty impressive array of officials who were in the room as it happened, uh, as one John Bolton and his mustache might say, uh, and appears to have gotten basically all of the major players on the record. Uh, it does have some new revelations that I think are going to be very interesting for people uh, and uh, is going to be a good companion to a lot of the uh, the journalism and the history so far on Russian election interference. So check it out. Go on Amazon. Get it. Rigged by David Shimmer. Rigged. It's rigged. Sounds like somebody we should have on the Lawfare podcast. I think that's a great idea. Um, and maybe even one day on this podcast, but not today's podcast because it's over. We have reached the end of another fabulous edition of Rational Security, which, of course, is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on lawfareblog.com. You can find Rational Security VR goggles at whatever imaginary gamer storefront Ben lives in now when he's wearing Yeah, we should have his like Rational segue. Security in VR, um, <laughs> where you can sit around with Shane's avatar and throw yes. grapes at him. At thelawfarestore.com. Can I be a frog? I want to be you like can a be frog. Whatever you want to be, Shane. On a golden lily pad, eating grapes, apologizing I'm for telling nothing. you. We're not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can, of course, find us on Facebook as well. Whenever you le- download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a nice rating and a review. It helps others find the podcast, and we sure appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Bill Barr with his shifty rendition of a Jerome Kern classic, Spice Gets in Your Eye. Eyes. Nice. <laughs> not in his eyes, baby. It's no, not a chemical. Not a chemical. Not with those face shields he's wearing that he calls glasses. I would pay money right now to hear Sophia Yan do a nice rendition of Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. It is one of my favorite songs. I would even pay uh, her in the peppers. I think I think we should uh we should call it up for next week. Sounds like a good idea. But until then, on behalf of my good friends Ben Wittis, Tamara Kaufman Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. If you're cutting peppers, wear gloves. And goggles. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 